Hi, everyone. I'm Navidita Carr from the University of Southern California, and I am the host of the Anthropology Channel for the New Book Network. Today, we are joined by renowned science and health writer Kathleen McOla. Her articles have been featured on dozens of covers and magazines, including Discover, The New York Times, U.S. News and World Report, Smithsonian, Atlantic Monthly, and Glamour, to name a few. As a senior editor for the U.S. News and World Report, and having been interviewed on National Public Radio and the PBS seminar on genes, she is an expert in the field of science writing. As a widely read author of the 2012 Atlantic feature, How Your Cat is Making You Crazy, she joins us from Miami, Florida, to talk about her latest book, This is Your Brain on Parasites, How Tiny Creatures Manipulate Our Behavior and Shape Society. Hi, Kathleen. It's great to have you. Hi. Pleasure to be here. So I was wondering if we could just start this interview um, by talking a little bit more about the background of this book, how you became interested in the world of parasites and how you decided to write a book on it. Okay. One day I was uh, just surfing the web looking for interesting topics to write about, and I came across this article about a parasite that gets into rats' brains, and it actually makes the animals more sexually attracted to cats. And this just struck me as the wildest thing I had ever heard about, and I instantly knew I had to learn more about this parasite. Absolutely. So you mention in your book about this field of parasites Cytology is one that is rather new and constantly evolving. Um, and your book sort of explores some of the challenges and difficulties posed by scientists in this field. I was hoping you could explain to the audience what you found to be the most challenging within this area and for writing such a book. For me, the biggest challenge in writing the book was narrowing down the particular um, parasitic manipulations that I was going to feature. Uh, so the, the first half of the book is uh, about parasites that manipulate the behavior of their host to improve their own transmission, but usually at a cost to the host. And this uh, phenomenon was at one time thought to be rare, but uh, just in the last decade, parasitologists are discovering that it's far more common than they ever appreciated. And when I started to look into the field further, I discovered there was just so many wonderful uh, examples, bizarre examples, uh, like the, the, the rat parasite I just discussed. Uh, and so the, the big, big challenge was narrowing down the, the particular choice of um, manipulators that I was going to feature in the book. Yeah, so, I mean, you kind of already mentioned um, about this rat example, so I, of course, have to bring up the T. Gandhi example, um, which pretty much, I think, um, illustrates the complete chain of command employed by parasites um, and the incredible power that it truly has over its host. So would you like to explain this example to our audiences and just in general share the implications parasites have on behavior in terms of non-human animals? 
Yeah. Okay. Well, the the, the parasite that I, I just mentioned, the one that gets into to rats brains and makes them sexually attracted to cats, that that parasite is called uh, T. gondii, and it's a one-cell protozoan. And uh, it cats are the only place in which this uh, parasite can sexually replicate. So, it, you know, this, it's very convenient for the parasite that yeah. the rat ends up in the belly of a cat. <laughs> and then the cats shed the parasite's eggs in their feces, and uh, rodents then can grazing, or, you know, foraging rodents can pick them up from the, the ground, and then the cycle starts anew. Uh, among other things, uh, not only does... Um, do male rats become more attracted to their number one predator? Uh, the parasite also uh, causes the animals to behave in a more reckless uh, fashion. They seem to lose um, a lot of fears. They, they do stupid things. They're less, uh, a normal, healthy rodent will avoid bright lights uh, and, you know, and uh, open spaces. But uh, rodents infected with this parasite you know, are happy to sally forth into the bright light of day where, again, you know, it makes them much more uh, vulnerable to predation. And uh, you were asking me about, you know, how I got the idea from the book, and I told you how excited I was when I read about this parasite. Part of my excitement was that I learned that, uh, this, that we often have this parasite in our brains. And, in fact, uh, 20% of Americans have, the, the parasite, and uh, in other parts of the world, even higher percentage of people, like 50% of the French, have this parasite in their brain. Uh, and it turns out that um, we can get it from, for example, we can be exposed when we change cat litter boxes. T. gondii is the reason why pregnant women are told to, you know, let somebody else in their household change a litter box. Uh, and it's long been known that the parasite... Um, Oh, let me mention one or two other ways in which we can get it. Um, if you uh, are gardening and you come in and you don't properly wash your hands, uh, that's another way we can be contaminated. If you don't uh, carefully wash vegetables after harvesting them from the from your garden, you know, making sure to scrub off all those last dirt particles. Um, another way that uh, I think is really important for people to be aware of is cat litter boxes. Sorry. Sandboxes, children's sandboxes, because uh, cats frequently uh, vary their feces. So uh, whenever they're not in use, uh, those sandboxes should be covered. And finally, and this may be one of the most common routes by which we can become infected, I mentioned that foraging rodents can pick the parasite up from the ground, while grazing cattle can too. And not only does the parasite travel to their brain, but it also uh, invades their muscles, which is the chip, the you know the, the flesh that we eat. So if you like to eat uh, your beef or lamb rare, you can uh, be exposed to the parasite that way. Uh, and if you want to avoid that that hazard, then you either cook your meat a little bit more well done, or uh, just freeze the meat first and that will kill the parasite, and then you can eat it rare. So those are a number of the ways that we can be exposed. Uh, and until recently, it was assumed that uh, 
the people, uh, the groups at greatest risk of experiencing harm from this parasite were pregnant women, or in particular their, their fetus. Um, the parasite can uh, harm the developing nervous system uh, and even lead to blindness uh, or trigger miscarriages. And then people who are immunocompromised, so for example, someone... Um, uh, being treated with chemotherapy or someone who is taking immunosuppressant drugs to prevent rejecting an organ, uh, they too are, are um, most vulnerable to this parasite because it can, uh, it, in people whose immunity is compromised, it can um, really flare up in the brain and cause um, massive inflammation of the brain that can even be lethal. But it, it used to be thought that for everybody else, we, if you're healthy and you're exposed to this parasite, it's no big deal. You know, once the parasite gets into our brain, maybe we might experience a brief flu-like malaise, but then it settles down into our brain cells never again to cause any further problems. It becomes what medical science calls a dormant infection. In recent years, however, uh, several labs are starting to challenge that view. I don't want to freak everybody out because so many, like a quarter of the population, has it. (laughs) (laughs) But so, uh, so we it's assumed that it's only a a, a tiny percent of the people with the dormant infection who will experience um, adverse consequences. Uh, Some of these consequences include, um, believe it or not. Reckless driving. Um, if you're if you're infected with the parasite, uh, at least uh, studies in a few countries show you're about two to three times more likely to be in a car crash. No one knows the exact reason why. Um, some research shows that infected people have slow, slightly slower reaction times. So you know maybe that affects their driving ability. Uh, or you know we know the rats behave in a more reckless way. <laughs> maybe that, that infected people drive in a you know more aggressive, uh, you know, more reckless fashion. Um, but there's a fair, studies in quite a few countries support a connection between uh, infection with parasite and uh, car accidents. Uh, Another way uh, the parasite may uh, affect people who have the the dormant infection is it may um, increase the risk of developing schizophrenia. Um, Now, only 1% of the population has schizophrenia, and presumably it's only a fraction of that population um, that may, where where the, the parasite may play a role, but um, there have been 38 studies over the last few decades, um, 38 studies of uh, people with schizophrenia uh, and have also looked at um, their antibodies against the parasite, and basically they've shown that, um, these review articles have shown that if you have schizophrenia, you're about two to three times more likely to have antibodies against this parasite. Uh, And then yet another group has um, connected the parasite to uh, suicidal behavior. In in Europe, a lot of women get tested for the parasite as soon as they become pregnant. So some groups have done longitudinal studies. They've um, followed the mental health of 
women um, from the time of childbirth uh, for the next 15 years. And uh, in a study of about 45,000 women that was done in Denmark, they found that the women who had the parasite, uh, you know, at the time of childbirth, that they were uh, more likely to attempt suicide or were succeeding killing themselves. And then another group looked at 25 countries across Europe, and they found that um, suicidal behavior increased in, in direct proportion to the prevalence of the parasite in each country. So it does uh, seem to um, be bad news. This parasite is bad news for a small percentage of people. We don't know how many, but it's enough of a concern that a number of medical laboratories right now are trying to develop drugs that will help to route this parasite out of the brain. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's something our audience probably should know about. And it's almost um, insane that we don't hear about it enough. Um, so this kind of brings me to the metaphor that you use in your book about how we sort of believe that we hold the driver's seat while thinking about the autonomy of our lives. But in actuality, we have these invisible passengers, namely these parasites that learn to manipulate us humans and have had some form of ramifications, um, which you talk about this forgotten emotion, um, namely disgust. Could you please discuss the importance of disgust and its association with disease avoidance? Yes. Um, okay. Disgust. Uh, this is a topic I, I um, go into great detail about in this second part of our in my book because the beginning I talked all about parasitic manipulators and how clever parasites are and you know <laughs> manipulating us to you know for their own good not ours but in the second half of the book I look at our defenses against parasites and in particular our behavioral defenses against parasites and. Uh, Few of us realize that we possess this amazing germ shield called the behavioral immune system. And basically the way it works is as we're walking around our environment, often, you know, outside our full conscious awareness, we are constantly scanning our surroundings for signs of contaminants. So it could be garbage or blood on a toilet seat, grimy uh, fingerprints on a wall, or any sign of contaminants. And when our mind spots those contaminants, um, we're almost programmed to feel disgust and to you know, withdraw from the potential threat. So that's called our behavioral immune system, and it is every bit as vital to our survival as the flight or fight response. Um, and it's being, it's really attracted more and more um, attention in recent years. Uh, one of the reasons why is it turns out one of the leading sources of contaminants in our environment is other human beings. We are walking germ bags. And so um, our minds pay very close attention to any signs that we may be ill. Um, but this system is very crudely calibrated. It's not guided by sophisticated reasoning. So basically any physical oddity can uh, trigger alarm. 
So our behavioral immune system um, may be triggered by, say, a pink oozing eye or snotting noses or a festering skin sore. But it, it can also be triggered by uh, acne or a prominent birthmark or spasticity, uh, deformity. Um, so it's, it's crudely calibrated. Um, and on the one hand, it protects us from disease, but this is definitely a nasty side effect of, um, of the way our d disease avoidance system works. Uh, it, it, it can be a source of um, hidden prejudice. For example, uh, people who are more um, disgust-sensitive tend to be uh, more openly disparaging of the obese. They're less likely to befriend uh, people with disabilities. Uh, they're less likely to socialize with uh, foreigners. Uh, they're more likely to have... Um, in, Test, implicit tests to um, express negative attitudes towards the elderly. Mm. So this um, behavioral immune system has a lot of insidious uh, effects that um, you know it, it can contribute to prejudice and, and largely outside of a lot of people's awareness. Um, in particular, um, when our, our behavioral immune system is activated, we often um, uh, become more prejudiced towards foreigners. There's a variety of uh, reasons this may happen. Uh, one of the reasons, possibly, and this is being explored, is that if uh, you live in a place where everybody looks kind of the same and then you see someone who has a different you know, skin color or eye color or hair texture, they register as abnormal, you know, weird, that because you're just not, you know, used to seeing people who look that way. And so the behavioral immune system is triggered just as it might be, uh, you know, in response to somebody who has excess body weight or uh, acne or whatever. Um, it's just registering that something is odd and that may trigger the behavioral immune system. Um, also, uh, um, when we are disgusted, when there's uh, disease cues around us, uh, we uh, become very aware of anybody who breaks societal norms. And probably the reason for this is because many norms, uh, particularly manners, the vast majority of manners and a lot of religious customs have the hidden function of protecting us from disease. So these kinds of customs are sexual prohibitions, culinary practices, washing before prayer, bowing instead of handshaking. Um, so we, um, when, when we're worried about germs, we, we want people to, you know, behave in the way that, you know, our culture tells us is the, is the right way to behave. And, and guess who's most likely not to follow your customs? Foreigners. Mm -hmm. So in places that are parasitic hotspots, people tend to be more clannish, less likely to socialize with outsiders, uh, outsiders that are sexually conservative. Uh, Can you explain this parasitic hotspot for our audience? Oh, okay. Sorry about that. There, uh, parasites vary tremendously in prevalence from one part of the world to the next. And as you can imagine, in hot, uh, humid uh 
climates, uh, in places around the equator in particular, uh, parasites are much uh, bigger health threat. Um, these, these parts of the world, the equatorial regions in particular, tend to have very high rates of infectious disease. And, uh, and then, of course, as you move further north or further south, uh, the risk of infection decreases. So you were sort of saying how these parasitic hotspots and foreigners, they're sort of, um, through this disease avoidance, have contributed to ethnocentrism. So I just wanted to um, keep going on this train of thought that you were having. In such cultures, in these uh, parasitic hot zones, uh, there is much more emphasis that people follow uh, societal norms. And when people break societal norms, uh, there's much uh, more, uh, there's a much ho- more hostile stance towards nonconformists. And they also tend to be more clannish, so they're less likely to want to uh, socialize with foreigners. They're sexually conservative. Um, and they also uh, tend to be religious. And again, that's because a lot of religious customs protect us from the spread of disease. Yeah, so that was something that was particularly surprising to me is you mentioned religion as one of the sort of enforcers of public health. So would you like to talk about how um, how religion comes to play a vital part in informing public health? Yeah, a lot of... Um the world's great religions uh, arose uh, several thousand years ago um, when uh, basically at the dawn of civilization when for the first time you have large groups of people congregating together and you know, the perfect environment for uh, infectious disease to spread. And um, also at that time people were uh, domesticating animals. So they were being exposed to animal germs as well. And of course, in these early cities, they didn't have, you know, our modern plumbing or sanitation. So, um, you know, the water must have been pretty fetid. I mean, lots of human excrement is, you know, fouling the waterways and so on. So infectious disease was, you know, uh, epidemics and outbreaks were, I think, everyday occurrences. And at this time, we have Judaism arising. Judaism, by the way, is the foundation also for Christianity and Islam. And uh, early Jews uh, were instructed to uh, follow just, just a whole bunch of different behaviors that are critical for um, preventing the spread of infection. And this is kind of surprising because nobody even knew what a germ was or that they're related to disease. And yet um, um, Moses uh, was commanded by God. He, he, Moses was told the Jews that um, they should wash their hands. Uh, the rabbis who were considered the healers in their community were told to wash their hands, which is, you know, this single best method of preventing infection known to modern science. Mm-hmm. And um, they, they were told to wash their hands with purifying water, which included animal fat and ash mixed into water. That's basically an early recipe for soap. 
uh, early Jews were instructed to um, put used uh, dirty plates and dirty utensils to submerge them in boiling water after use. They were told to bury their dead quickly, you know, before the corpses could decompose. Uh, they were told never to uh, to eat an animal that had been felled by natural causes. That's probably a sign that it was diseased at the time of its death. Uh, when it came to the plunder of war, they were advised to put any kind of metal booty, you know, like a gold goblet or a tin plate, uh, they were told to put it through the flame. Well, what was that? They were sterilizing right. the, these, uh, these metal objects. And then if they were instructed, if it cannot be put through the flame, wash it in purifying water. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when people had uh, skin rashes or any other signs of skin disease, they were uh, told to basically quarantine them and to burn their clothes. So the list goes on and on. One more that I think is very important is that um, Jewish parents uh, were um, uh, they, they were discouraged from allowing their daughters to become prostitutes, or um, they it's, uh, premarital sex, bestiality, homosexuality. All these things were became were banned. Uh, the Jewish law dictated that one should not engage in these activities. So again, that helps to reduce the spread of infection. Yeah, and I also found particularly interesting your example about um, on Hinduism and not using the left hand as sort of um, that is the left hand is sort of reserved for the more, quote, dirty things. Um, So I was wondering also, um, so we talk about all these things, and one of the things that is key in your book is about how parasites are relatively just ignored in this conversation or at best um, on the periphery when characterizing macro dimensions of cultures, such as political affiliation, collective and individualistic identities. So what do you hope to most inform our audiences that may read your book? I think it is really important that people appreciate that uh, disgust lies at the foundation of many of our moral intuitions. And there is a danger in uh, relying on disgust alone to tell you what's right and wrong. So, for example, there are people who think homosexuality is a sin because it's disgusting. And they're not, that's it. There's no evidence of uh, any person who is has been harmed or, or wronged excuse me just a second <coughs> mm-hmm. um, that they have this disgust based reasoning this just leads to I, I think it's it's dangerous when it's just um, feelings outside our conscious awareness that are um, leading us to, to reach these beha- these decisions where sin is defined purely by disgust. Um, you know, for example, you know, heterosexuals may 
homosexuals may find heterosexual sex disgusting, right? So, I mean, how in the world, nobody's saying that we should therefore ban, you know, sex between men and women. So it's a very subjective uh, uh, feeling, and it's not based on right and wrong. It's, I don't think it really has any place uh, in, in the foundation of making um, moral decisions or legal decisions. So I think that's uh, one very important thing that uh, people need to take into account. And I also think that um, Parasite's role in shaping entire societies um, is a topic that needs to be looked at more closely because one of the implications is that if we can reduce uh, infectious disease, that we might be able to reduce uh, reduce prejudice and uh, reduce uh, religious intolerance and tribalism, uh, negative views towards outsiders. So I, it, what is most insidious about um, disgust is that it operates to a large degree outside our conscious awareness, so we're not fully appreciating um, how much we may be relying on, on this you know, raw, visceral emotion to make uh, complex uh, moral judgments. So it kind of seems like you're hinting at the capacity for critical thinking. So I was wondering if you could kind of expand upon that to our audience. Uh, yeah. Um, there are so many ways in which um, discussed uh, in my view, warps our judgment. So as I, I mentioned before, uh, to basically prejudice against the obese, uh, prejudice against the elderly, uh, prejudice against foreigners. Um, there's been a lot of studies done, and they've shown that if people who are more disgust sensitive are more likely to oppose immigration. It's actually a study just... Um, about to be published. Was, there were 2,000 Danes in the study, 1,300 Americans. It was done online, and they had um, the subjects, you know, fill out a questionnaire uh, that uh, surveyed their views about immigration, and they also took a, a standardized test to see uh, how disgust-sensitive they are. They asked you questions like how you feel if you uh, bit into an apple with a worm in it or uh, stepped in dog poop, saw a cockroach on a piece of pizza. And people who score high uh, on stress sensitivity, they were much more likely to uh, oppose immigration. And in fact, it scaled with the level of your disgust. And the, greater, the more disgust sensitive you were, the more opposed you were. To, to immigration. Uh, and then other groups have shown that um, it affects voting behavior, your disgust sensitivity. There was a study uh, done actually during the 2008 election between uh, Barack Obama and John McCain, McCain being the more conservative candidate, 
And the researchers um, found that people who are more disgust sensitive, sensitive were more likely to vote for McCain. Uh, or they, they, they indicated they, would, they wanted to vote for McCain. And then after the election, they sort of looked at all the responses of subjects in each state to sort of get an average of, you know, how disgust sensitive a a group was in each state. And they found that uh, the actual proportion of votes that went to McCain would be predicted by the average disgust sensitivity of the state. So it affects whom we vote for. It affects us as we've discussed before, your attitudes towards gay marriage. It just has very far-reaching effects in, on our society. So what can our audience do to combat this? Good question. It's a little tricky, but there is um, some evidence that if you are aware that we are, you know, evolutionarily wired this way, that it will lead us to, you know, interrogate our ethics. Um, you know, humans alone are the only animals that are, are not driven solely by instinct. You know, we have big brains and, you know, we can examine our ethical beliefs and if we find them wanting, we can, we can endeavor to change our views. Uh, one of the scientists who's a, a leader in this field of research, his name is David Bazaar, and he's at Cornell University, and he told me that part of the reason he became so interested in uh, this topic is because he is insanely disgust-sensitive, and he actually has to have his students program the disgusting imagery used in his studies. And he says to me, I think it is a major feat that I succeeded in becoming liberalized on uh, many of my beliefs. But, you know, it just came from really challenging his, his, you know, his worldview. Like, why do I feel that way? And is, is that a good reason why I should feel, you know, that this group should be deprived of fundamental human rights? Um, but, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, some, some people are just more self-reflective by nature. Um, I suspect that even um, some people, uh, when they're made aware of these kinds of biases that that we have, these probably innate biases, I suspect they may not get beyond them. But I think a lot of people will. So my hope is that, that that will happen. And as people's attitudes change, then social norms change, and then uh, then people uh, are, then then you're not disgusted by as many things, (laughs) so hopefully that will help too. So the ideal is sort of shifting social norms in in favor of the progressive, I'm sort of is the takeaway message that I was getting. I'll have to admit that that is the case. I am liberal, I am progressive, and yes, I do think that our um, our laws and our social policies should be based on um, you know, protecting rights, and they should be based on, we should define moral as harming others. There has to be, uh, you know, a victim <laughs> 
And if there isn't a victim, if, if you say something is wrong just because it disgusts you, well, I'm sorry. To me, that has no place in moral thought. Absolutely. Um, so I just wanted to, for our last question, um, I'm sure our audience is really curious on what you're currently working on or what you have planned for the future. I am currently working on an article for The Atlantic, and it is uh, related to my book. I can't go into too much detail because it's uh, yet to be published, but um, basically I argue that conservatives are more disgust-sensitive and that this has uh, far-ranging implications for the current political scene. Um, it's part of the reason uh, the world today is so polarized is uh, is due to this, this this difference that liberals are less disgust sensitive. Uh, they're uh, you know more willing to socialize with foreigners and they're less ethnocentric. Uh, so that's. In a nutshell, yeah, like, what it's about. <laughs> yeah, totally. I can't wait to read that. Um, do you have any books kind of in the works or anything of that nature? I don't. I don't. You know, I I worked on this book for four years, and I, I want to take a break. I just <laughs> yeah. want to have fun. You I want to do some travel and play tennis and do some gardening and yeah, connect with old friends. Of, of a really great way to spend your next few years as well. Um, so on that note, great. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Um, and it's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Again, I'm your host, Nevadita Carr. And I urge everyone to please go out and read this book. This is Your Brain on Parasites, How Tiny Creatures Manipulate Our Behavior and Shape Society. Thanks so much. Thank you.